The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Episode number 207 of the Talking Space Podcast. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is our same table of suspects here, Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. And welcome to you, Sawyer, and welcome back home. Thank you. Welcome, Gina Hurley. Hey, Sawyer. I can't wait to hear about your trip to Florida. Me neither. And uh, <laughs> hello, Mark Ratterman as well. Hi, Sawyer. Long, long time no see. Yeah, we actually got to meet each other, and if you can't tell, I was just away in Florida to go see the launch of STS-130, but we'll save that for a little bit later. Right now, let's get right into things, because we got a lot to talk about. The first one is that President Obama, how he had stated that with the budget, that he would be canceling the Constellation program. Congress is now sending a letter, a group of 27 Congress members have sent a letter to Charlie Bolden, who's NASA's administrator, as well as Obama, stating that they believe that Ares should not be canceled just yet, and that it still needs Congress's approval before they can completely get rid of the program. So, would you sign the letter saying keep the program, or would you say just scrap it already? Well, Sawyer, I think what the Congress is trying to do is they're just basically telling um both the white house and uh and nasa that uh hey yo sparky hold on we control the purse strings still the con the the constitution says we control the purse strings still and in order to go ahead and kill a program of this magnitude you have to go through congress there are ways to do that we have not authorized you know the destruction of the con of the constellation program just yet and uh, we would like to go ahead and vote on this proposal as the Constitution says we has, have to do. So I think what Congress is doing, I mean, it may also be applied for, uh, for a lot of constellation huggers, as it were, uh, to go ahead and, and just sort of hang on to the program a little longer. But I think what they're trying to do is say, hey, hold on, um, we need to debate this. The law says that you know we still hold we still hold the purse strings here in Congress, and that we have to approve it before you go ahead and move along. Because I think what NASA's been doing is is they've really really been been adamant about dismantling Constellation at this point and really trying to get their ducks in order for getting this whole this whole thing you know together with uh, the, with the commercial aspect of things. And I think Congress is saying, we're moving too fast on this. Let's debate, and let's make sure we know what we're doing here. Right. NASA doesn't make the law. They abide by it. If Congress says that they want it by a majority, then they keep Constellation. And 
I don't know if they're going to get the full support for it, though, especially with Obama already saying it's just about done. Yeah, uh, the president's basically said that this is the way, this is the path we're going to take. But again, uh, before any, uh, you know, any type of spending is, is or any type of allocation spending is, is, is uh, approved, it's got to go through Congress. And, you know, the Congress is right. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the, the signatories here. Yeah, some the majority of them are of the opposite party, but there, there are a few Democrats here, too. And, uh, you know, they're just saying, hey, you know, guys, we do have a process here. So let's follow this process and let's approve the budget first before we go ahead and start, you know, saying off with his head with Constellation just yet. I've got a comment. Uh, one of the things that we really don't need is another situation where Congress and the president are at odds and where, you know, industry and the government themselves are all in a state of confusion. You know, I would love to see Constellation either have gone or or discontinue. And I hope that they're smart enough that with funds that are there that they dismantle Constellation in a smart way. Yeah, Mark, I have to agree with you on that. The um, uh, from, and from what I'm seeing, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the folks that are working within the Constellation program now are doing just that. Uh, they are trying to go ahead and and you know wind things down, but they're trying to do it in a smart manner, where a lot of the data that they have sort of compiled over the past few months and and few years really um, is not lost, and that if Perchance um, a later endeavor uh, comes about where a lot of that data could come in handy. Um, it can be recalled and looked at. So you know, it's a way of making sure that the past eight years of working on Constellation was not all from hot. There's an editorial written by Charles Krauthammer, which is in the Orlando Sentinel. And uh, what's really interesting is uh, how he keeps saying that Kennedy had the right idea. Kennedy kept the program going. As he says, quote, when John F. Kennedy pledged to go to the moon, he meant it. He had an intense personal commitment to the enterprise. He delivered speeches remembered to this day. He dedicated astronomical sums to make it happen. To jump down to the end of the article, 50 years ago, Kennedy opened the new frontier. Obama has just shut it, which is really a harsh way of putting it, but unfortunately, I think he's right. The whole problem, I think... Um, with this was just the way this idea was rolled out. I don't think it was was, was very 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 well thought out. First off, I agree with the premise that lower orbit should be turned over to private industry. We know how to do it. We've been doing it now for what 40 years, so they know how to. We know how to do it. Um, let somebody else deal with that. That is sort of like a. I don't. I don't want to say nuisance. But it's something we know what to do. Let's let's devote money for exploration. Let's devote money to develop new technologies for exploration and so on. The problem is, uh, I, I know there were I know we're, we're we're going down the the infamous flexible path route that uh, the Augustine Commission uh, sort of recommended. Problem is, I see a lot of flexibility here. We see a lot of technologies being designed and so on. I don't see the path. The objectives of a new exploration initiative have not been articulated yet. 
And until that that sort of happens, and I think I've said this on the show before, until that sort of happens, I'm going to be just a little leery about what's been going on here. So I want to see a blueprint as to what we're going to be doing with all these technologies first before before we we proceed, and that's the missing problem. And I think that's that's what Mr. Krauthammer Hammer is sort of. Uh, alluding to here. I think that was a little harsh. I wouldn't definitely say that Obama has absolutely slammed the door on exploration or um, what was the term that you used, Sawyer? That Obama has shut the door to the new frontier. New frontier. I mean, I, I think he's just taking a step back and making sure that we're spending the money the best we can spend it. Now, of course, I'm really not too happy to see such a long gap between shuttle and what our next option is to get out of low earth orbit but i'm not convinced constellation was the way there i just think it will take my children's lifetime for us to get to mars on a constellation rocket there's just too many unknowns the length of time it would take to get there the amount of radiation astronauts would have to face you know the supply and food problem waiting until uh, mars and earth were repositioned so you could come back to earth and every minute you spend on the surface of another world, you're taking that risk is going to grow and grow. I think he's just trying to take a step back and make sure that the propulsion systems we're armed with when we do indeed try to make this journey are the best we can absolutely do. I think that's a little unfair to the president. You see, though, I, I don't hear anything about going back to the moon. I don't hear anything about going to Mars. All I hear is the development of new technologies. The problem is we're, we're kind of sort of, in my opinion, we're kind of sort of putting, putting the cart before the horse. We're going to be developing all this new, all these new toys, but not, not a, a purpose for developing them yet. Um, I think what NASA has to do and what the White House has to do is really, really articulate the blueprint. Really articulate the put the put the path in flexible path for us, and say how we're going to do it. Set up the milestones and say this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it, and these are the technologies we need to develop and go for go with that. We we don't have that yet. I think we're going to see we're going to see China on the moon long before we get there. Um, it's it, to me it's heartbreaking. I mean we've done all this. Before. So let's, you know, let, let's go off and, and, and do it again and do it better. But, uh, you know, somebody, I hope to God you're right, Gina, that the, that the, that the, that the, our, that the, that the plan is coming. And I, I've, I think I heard uh, Charlie Bolden say the same thing uh, when this was first proposed, that he said the plan's coming. But we would like, I'd really, really like to see the, see the plan before I really start getting the warm fuzzies about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, may, and, and maybe that's what should have done been happened. Maybe they should have gone ahead, articulated the plan, put that together first before announcing the commercial side of things. Because I think it would have made everybody feel a little better about, about going forward. Yeah, I think the presentation was off. I agree with you. But, you know, the timing regarding when they needed to announce, when the budget needed to be ready, when the State of the Union was, I mean... You know, I, I think um, there were just some things in play that they couldn't quite control. So, unfortunately, the presentation of this plan is what really suffered. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have done it any better if um, it was any other time of the year. But I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. But I think that's where the employees of the space centers were hurt um, because 
you know, I, I think so many people were blindsided. Alrighty then. So moving along to our next topic then. Something else still to go along with the future of our space program. But you're mentioning that there's that gap there, that really long gap between what we know of right now with the space shuttle ending and what could be in the future. One possibility that was mentioned actually on This Week in Space was this. A lot of the, uh, the folks who have said we can't fly the shuttle longer aren't dealing completely in facts. Uh, we test the water with all the other contractors. Lockheed Martin's one of the long poles because they've got to build new tanks. Right. And they have disassembled some of, of the uh, equipment necessary to build tanks, but that equipment still exists at Mashu and could be put back into service very easily. The space is there. Uh, the material is there for about four or five additional tanks. And then there would be time if, as you built those to build more tanks if you wanted to fly the shuttle a couple times a year until the United States had another human spaceflight capability. All right, so this idea is possible. Is there, are there any other big issues that you would have to do? Yeah, I mean, as far as the, like the, the space shuttle main engines, that kind of thing that would require, uh, be required to, to get the, the space shuttle back up there? Uh, there's no, no showstopper whatsoever. You'd have to bring some suppliers back online, but they're ready to go. Uh, people will come. This is, if you want to fly shuttles longer, the folks are there to support it. Okay, so that was Howard DeCastro, who is part of the United Space Alliance. And so that could be a possibility. If we had the external tanks, do we do it? Or do we continue leaving the gap? What's your opinion on this possibility of still having the occasional shuttle flight here and there? Well, I don't think there's anybody on this panel that wouldn't be open to that. I think right now with the Russians deciding all of a sudden... Uh, knowing we're now dependent on them that, you know, we've already secured six seats on a Soyuz uh, spacecraft to put Americans up into the International Space Station at $50 million apiece. Now they're saying, oh, we're going to charge you more, obviously knowing we have no other choice. So if we're supposed to be partners in space with the Russians regarding the space station, I think that's pretty stinky, to be quite blunt. And, you know, I, how much is it going to cost us to restart the uh, supply chain for the space shuttle again, keep these people employed and keep Americans flying on American spacecraft, that's got to be a better option. I mean, the NASA budget has now been opened up or loosened up, I guess. So uh, if it can be done fairly easily, why wouldn't we want to go forward with that, close the gap and keep Americans flying American rockets? Yeah, the discussion on um, this week, Miles O'Brien's This Week in Space, um, was rather interesting to that effect. But if I remember exactly, a blog that was written by Wayne Hale a few months ago uh, was discussing this possibility just then. And he sort of seemed to think that, you know, getting the parts for the shuttle, uh, a lot of the parts, a lot of that parts pipeline has been sort of winding down of late. Uh, to a point where it's just like a slow trickle. And Mr. Hale figured that this was not going to happen, you know, that this would not be a, an, an inexpensive thing to do to go ahead and crank up the uh, that particular pipeline for just certain little little parts on the shuttle. And uh, his opinion was that this bird's flown. He doesn't think that it could, it could happen. But um, I'm... 
I'm with Gina on this one. If there is there's a way to extend the shuttle, you know, maybe two flights a year, just to maintain our access to space, um, and then the United States' access to space, then I'm all for it. And even if it means, you know, just two shuttle flights a year, let's do it. I'm sure it'd probably be easy enough to call back employees and. Uh, maybe streamline operations, knowing that it would be a limited demand. Yeah, I, I think that's also one of the things Wayne Hale was sort of alluding to in his blog. Didn't the Augustine Committee try to figure this one out, too, at one point, and they decided extending shuttle was not a good idea or, or something along those lines? Yes, they did. Okay. I, I just want to make sure I was thinking up, thinking about that. I'm but, not sure uh, if they looked at it from an economic perspective or if they only looked at it from the point of view that space, the space shuttle obviously is a, can be a considered a dangerous system to fly. I think that might have been it, Gina, uh, that they were looking at it from, a, uh, from an aspect of safety and they weren't looking at it from an aspect of, of, uh, of main, just maintaining it to keep access you know, while we waited for something to come up in the pipeline. I'm just wondering, too, uh, now that the Russians seem to be in the business of, and I really hate to use the word extortion here, um, but that's the only word I can think of at this point because they know they're the only game in town. I mean, shoot, we're talking about a national security issue now. Do we want to go ahead and keep doling out money to, to the Russians or do we want to keep our own access? Well, you know, the whole uh, one of the issues about uh, this change for for the U.S. and space flight is that it be an international kind of a cooperative effort. You know, we're basically going to get what we wanted, like it or not. And if the Russians raise the price, hey, that's business. And if uh, if it cost ten times what we currently pay for shuttle flights to fly two missions a year, it'll be ten times. I'll tell you that if I was an employee in the aerospace industry that was related to uh, shuttle flights and I got handed my walking papers, and then six months later got an invite to come back to work, I'd say no with a capital N. <laughs> I'd be out there if, if I was fortunate enough to, uh, to have a place and to have, have work and, and to have those things that you basically, uh, I mean, work is a job to support your life. It's, it's not the other way around. But if I managed to, to pull off that transition, I wouldn't go back. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that one, Mark. All right, so that was very interesting. Now let's move on to a different system. And let's talk a little about the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which was successfully launched this week, this past week. And Mark, I believe you got a chance to talk with somebody about this, correct? Sure did. Uh, Talked to one of the fellow attendees at the uh, NASA tweet-up for the STS-129 launch. And, um, you know, you really don't get a feel for what it's like at one of these events until you talk to somebody that's been there. Even with Twitter and being able to, to message back and forth and, and to chat via Twitter, that doesn't do it. And so the interview that I uh, recorded with Melissa Ox that we're going to play next, I think will give everybody a real feel for, for how exciting it was and how valuable these opportunities are. All right, then let's play. Got on the line with me, Melissa Ox. We met back at November at the STS-129 which for us was the first NASA tweet up, and we've learned since then there were several before, and and here we are continuing. But uh, Melissa Ox and her husband Dave Ox were there and uh, got to sit at a table with them and and have the cool experience of that tweet up, and she was at the SDO event at Kennedy Space Center. So Melissa um, 
just wanted to hear some of the things that were exciting about the event you were at. What was it like for you? I mean, you put your name in the hat and you got picked. How, how was all that? How did it feel? Well, it was definitely exciting to get picked. I didn't really think that we'd get picked. And to top that off, it had to be me and my husband because I'm a giant chicken. I'm not going to go by myself. <laughs> um, so the night that I knew the emails came out, I knew I'd gotten my email, and I didn't know if he'd gotten his. So that evening was on pins and needles until he told me, and then we were excited. The biggest difference around this gathering of Twitter crazy people who like space is that it was smaller and more personal, and we were there every day with people who had worked on this project. So they were very emotionally tied to the project, uh, and it was a great experience, and we had a great time. I, the the pre the first tweet up in November is what a hundred a hundred and fifty people. Right, it was, was big group. It made it hard to really get to know anybody overall, unless you you just happened to hunt them down whenever anything was going on. And in this group, because we were so small, it was easier to get to know people and to really put a person behind the the Twitter personality that you've been familiar with. And in some cases, there were some people that we'd met before. Um, it, it was a great experience, not just with the Twitter group, but we were there with hundreds of people who had worked and devoted time and energy to this project. I didn't really realize it until we went to the briefing. Uh, that would have been Tuesday afternoon. They had the room filled. It was standing room only. And most of the people were people who had worked on the project and their family and friends that they brought with them. And the briefing was really good. We, we got to see lots of images and get an understanding of the three instruments they were putting on the satellite, why they were putting it up there, and what it was going to mean to other people, you know, just everybody in the world, because the idea is to get a better understanding of the sun and then hopefully be able to compensate or adjust our own technology to not be interrupted by things like solar flares. I, I don't know if it's happened to you, but it, it's happened to me, where you want to use a check card and you can't, because the machines are down because of the solar flares going on. It was very interesting. On a downside, it was also rainy the first day and cold the last two days, <laughs> which is kind of different than November, where I don't remember it being cold or rainy. You live, uh, I would call it a stone's throw from, uh, from Kennedy Space Center, right? Oh, yeah. We watched, well, I should say my husband got up and watched the shuttle launch Monday morning in the backyard. I wasn't planning on getting up, but it was very noisy, and it woke me up anyway. <laughs> it's just part of the uh, background there on the Space Coast. Now, how was the launch of, uh, of SDO? Because this was a two-day event, right? The first day was your the, the briefing, and then you had some time with the, the uh, SDO group, and, and then the second day was the launch. Do I have that right? Yes. And the third day was the launch, too. <laughs> oh, the third. That's right. Forgot about that. There was one of those unfortunate scrubs. It was frustrating. And um, I guess because we were with some of the people that were with the project, they were depressed after it was scrubbed the first day. And we were all depressed. That's when we went out to eat at shuttles, and I got to meet the people who were supposed to be taking part in the the Twitter group in the Goddard Center. But because of the, the snow... That didn't happen, and a handful of them drove all the way down to Florida from Maryland in order to at least be here when it took off. And I got to meet them that afternoon, which was really nice. And 
the funniest part about the launch, I thought anyway, is that, um, and I don't know how much of it was televised because I know it wasn't covered as much as the shuttle launches are, but there was the four-minute hold and the 10-minute hold at four minutes. And um, the announcer guy must have had his clock set wrong because, what, three or four minutes before the hold was over, he came on and said that the hold was over. And we were all standing waiting to see the clock get past 3.59 this time, and it didn't move from four. And I don't know, maybe 15 seconds passed before he comes back on and says, oh, that was his mistake. The hold wasn't quite yet over. And then when the hold really did end, the clock went from four minutes to 3.58. It totally jumped over 3.59, which I found incredibly amusing. Oh, yeah. And once we got past that and it was down 3.58 when we were counting down, everybody was getting up and getting closer, getting their cameras ready, and you could just feel the excitement. Um, the young lady who pretty much was kind of in charge of our Twitter group was excited and jumping up and down and squealing and after it went up, she was crying. And then, I don't know if you've seen some of the the footage online and some of the pictures, there was some kind of cloud cover when it when the rocket launched, and there was, I just call it a little rainbow, but apparently the appropriate term is sun dog. And the rocket went really close to it, and then when it went through the clouds, it caused a ripple. And it was really wild because it was like somebody threw a rock kind of the same thing you get when you throw a rock in the water and you get all the little circular ripples going out. They did the same thing in the clouds, and that was just awesome to watch. So how do you feel about, uh, you know, plain old uh, satellite rocket launches? Uh, if you get the opportunity to uh, to step outside or maybe get closer if you need to, is that uh, something you'd look forward to in the future? Oh, yeah. The rocket launches are great. And they're the spectacle that you see, kind of how much noise and everything, which, I'm always thinking about because I live so close. It depends on which kind of rocket they're putting up. And this was one of the smaller ones, so it moves slower. So actually watching it go up, you're kind of like, is it really going to make it? But they also have the bigger ones. And the big, big, they're like super big one, which is Delta Five or something like that. Okay, which the biggest one, when it goes up, it makes more noise than the shuttle. And it can be kind of terrifying if you don't know what's going on. I could speak from experience on that. I guess some of the nice things with the with the rockets going up is that you know something is going up there, a satellite or it's sending out a probe, and it's great for science. It's going to send back lots of information. SDO, for example, is going to be in orbit over, I always forget the state, New Mexico, and it's going to be constantly sending down data, just unbelievable amounts of data on the sun, 1.5 terabytes a day, which, of course, to most people have no idea what that really means, including myself. My understanding from what they were telling us is they're going to, it goes to a center in the, the western part of the U.S., and then it's going to one of the colleges that worked on the project where they're going to sift through it, and I think ultimately it's supposed to be made available to the public, although through exactly how, I'm not sure. But it should be great. I mean, there's lots of information coming down. Before we know it, we might know more about the sun than we know about our own ocean. So any closing thoughts? Uh for NASA and how you feel about the, uh, what now I'm calling it a tweet-up, but uh, you said it was exactly what? We were called Twitter correspondents. Another thing that was a little bit different with this gathering than the previous one is that we were given tasks to kind of help interact with the people. We were there with the people who tweet behind, uh, like, um, I think it was NASA SDO and NASA SDO EDU. 
and we were assisting them in answering questions and helping people get enthused for the project and the launch. I know there was a list of schools that they had that were watching on Twitter and I guess on the television too. And Dan was sending kind of shout outs to the various schools with the information that we knew through Twitter. And I don't think anybody really responded, but you can just imagine a classroom full of like eight-year-olds seeing their school up on the screen. I'm sure they got a big kick out of that. Um, I think we we were tasked with asking people, you know, kind of their feelings, how it felt to be there and how it felt to go off, and then you would tweet the information. And, and there, was, there was stuff like that going on in addition to just being there and participating and tweeting how we felt about it. Uh, and Melissa, thank you again for sharing your uh, SDO experiences with us. It's really, really appreciated. You really gave us a good flavor of what it was like to be one of the one of, one of the uh, the 20 lucky folks that uh, were able to go ahead and and witness the, uh, the launch and be a part of it uh, in in the way you guys were. So appreciate it. All right. Now there was also another mission that successfully launched. SDO was this past week and also this past weekend. Well, it was supposed to be the weekend, but it eventually ended up going into <laughs> Monday morning. Was the launch of Space Shuttle Endeavor on STS-130, her penultimate flight. And uh, I believe a couple of our space troops were there, right, Mark? Sure was, uh, but I was there for the first attempt. Uh, had to watch the second attempt from my backyard, 160 miles away, so it wasn't quite the same. There's some people are probably still jealous that you got to see it, though. That's yeah. me, for one, living up here in New Jersey. So. so who else do you know if they got to see this launch? Well, as far as seeing it, uh, there was there was folks from the STO uh, tweet up that was going to be starting in a day or two there. Uh, some of them traveled in early. I did see a picture uh, from one of our uh, friends up in New York where he actually got a picture of the launch. 1,250 miles away, I think. So I guess you could say that qualified as being there. That was a beautiful yeah. picture. Yeah, it was. The sad part about this is, again, that this was sort of like the last scheduled um, night launch of, of the space transportation system. So, you know, the folks that were there, you know, in, on that cold morning uh, were sort of witness to history in a way. And, uh, it, that must have been quite an experience. And I believe a member of our panel, right, Sawyer, was over there as well. I don't know what? who you're talking about. <laughs> um, gee, I think we're talking about you, aren't we there? I believe um, we are. Yeah. So um, so where were you exactly? Um, wh what was your vantage point? And uh, uh, where exactly were you able to view the, the, the launch from? My launch viewing site was at the Banana Creek uh, VIP launch viewing site, which is the absolute closest point you can get to the space shuttle without being strapped on top of it. And that was a whole three miles away. Uh, not, you know, you guys must have had a real good... What, what did it look like from you guys, and from, from your standpoint, Sawyer, and, and how did it feel and, and all that? Because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to go through what it must have been like, because uh, Mark and I were there for STS-129, and uh, but that was an afternoon launch, and I was just wondering what a night launch was like. Oh, it was just absolutely amazing. I mean, first you see the engines ignite a little bit, like it's a little bright. Then all of a sudden they start up, you see the smoke go by, and then as it lifts off right through the smoke, after a couple of seconds, it just goes from night to day in a matter of seconds. And it's the most beautiful thing. It almost had a greenish glow to it. 
a yellow green. It was really bright, and it just lit up the entire sky. And the weirdest part, the absolute weirdest part, was I heard nothing. I didn't hear anything for almost 15 seconds. That includes from the time of main engine uh, start and everything. It almost took 15 seconds, and then it started going slowly louder louder and louder and then bam did it hit you i mean it hit you right away almost like a rocket <laughs> and uh it was great because you uh all of a sudden you started feeling your chest rumble almost it was great it was almost like someone turned uh the volume up ridiculously loud on rap music and you could feel the bass pounding your chest and then all of a sudden in your ear you hear the thousands of mini sonic booms going on, which you can't really hear that well on any video I've ever seen. You can't really hear it. In person, you can hear it, though. It's hard to describe, but it's like a mix of bubble wrap and the end of a fireworks show going off ridiculously loud in your ear. And it's the most amazing thing. And then you could see the entire thing go up and light up through the clouds and... As it was going away, you could even smell just the rocket fuel that was being burnt. And I had amazing binoculars courtesy of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, uh, which was how I actually got the launch viewing site and everything. A big thank you to the Make-A-Wish Foundation for making that possible. But as it was going up, I followed it with the binoculars. I could see solid rocket booster separation, or SRB SEP. And I could even see Miko, and not just the Space Tweep Society logo on my chest, <laughs> but... The actual main engine cutoff with the binoculars, and it's something that will be etched in my mind forever. It was one of the most amazing experiences ever. Yeah, I, I remember um, 129, and you were mentioning the solid rocket booster separation. We could see it too, but it was like, don't blink, um, because you, you would probably miss it. Uh, for a night launch shoot, you'd probably see the whole darn thing really, really vividly, correct? It actually wasn't that bright. I had to look through it for the binoculars to see it because I tried to see it without, hmm. with the naked eye and you could not see it that well because they, for some reason, they had a very light orange glow to it. The shuttle was brighter than the SRBs once they separated. At STS-126, I remember being able to see, which was a night launch, being able to see the three main engines. I mean, smaller and smaller and smaller, but it was probably seven minutes plus before we really lost sight of them with the naked eye. Because they were so bright up against the black sky. Yeah, okay. definitely. It kept going in and out. Like, uh, you could see it straight through for six, seven minutes. And then you would lose it for a second with the binoculars. And then you'd find it again. And my mom was right next to me looking at it with her naked eye. And I was looking through the binoculars. I could see it more with the binocs than I could with uh, the naked eye. But it kept fading in and out in brightness. But we saw it all the way through and past Miko, and it was just beautiful. It looked like a little star in the sky that kept moving, and it kept going further away and away. It looked like a mix of a star and the ISS moving, except it kept getting fainter. Um, just as an aside, the mission of STS-130 is to go ahead and deliver the, uh, the Tranquility Node, or Node 3, with the uh, cupola. Um, uh, as of this recording, uh, that has been done. Uh, Tranquility has been attached to the International Space Station, and last night's EVA, EVA number two, uh, attached the coolant lines. So everything appears to be working uh, very well with uh, with uh, getting uh, the Tranquility node integrated with the International Space Station. 
they've been having uh, terrible luck this mission with everything. The weather, which the first night I was there too, it was so frustrating because every second, five minutes later, it would be green, then it would be red. Go, no go, go, no go. It was to the point where the launch director actually said it was too dynamic. It was more dynamic than he has ever seen in his entire career, so he called it off. And of course, yeah. since it was a Saturday night into a Sunday, and it was a relatively cold but nice night, so many people showed up, and so many people left. And when they left, they left very, very slowly. Let's just say the 45-minute ride that it normally takes to go back to my hotel that night took three and a half hours. Yeah, I was wondering what a launch delay is like. <laughs> it's god-awful. You do not want to experience one because you feel so down because it's like you came to see launch, it looked great, and then all of a sudden it's no-go. So it's kind of like you wouldn't mind the three and a half hours of traffic if it actually went, but otherwise <laughs> it's, you know, you can't stand staying in traffic for three and a half hours. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I just can picture the frustration on a lot of people's face. But you know, hey, safety is priority one, and uh, they weren't going to go until they were ready. Right. By the way, I want to share two cool things that I learned uh, about this mission from uh, the bus rides and everything there at the launch. It was really cool. Two things. One, did you know that when the space shuttle lands and it returns to its orbiter processing facility (OPS) that it actually takes U.S. State Road 3. It takes the highway to get back to its place. Did you know that? It takes the highway? Yes, it does. It actually takes U.S. Road 3 to the Orbiter Processing Facility. I did not know that. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> One more really cool thing about the Kennedy Space Center is that the Kennedy Space Center is the only space center in the entire world that any person from the public can go and see a human launch into space. Of the three human launching sites, Kennedy Space Center is the only one open to the public. That's right, because the the uh, the the one the Russian one in Kazakhstan is is, is still a military critter. So uh, not everybody can go over there and see that. And China don't even want to get started there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, just two cool really interesting facts that I found out so I just figured I'd share that and what's really cool that I'm thinking about with you know that Kennedy Space Center is the only place if people can open these things up to the public there may be more interest and one thing that I forgot to mention earlier in this is that I was thinking about a relation right now between space flight and the Olympics the Olympics not huh. only is it an international cooperation not only is it where nations actually come together for once but it's also, when you think about it, a whole thing of national pride. Because you know how much national pride the United States has when they win a medal of some sort. Even if it's bronze, everyone goes crazy because the U.S. won a medal. And that's national pride. It's the same thing that we had back in the 60s with the Apollo days. National pride. If we could get that same national pride that we had back in the Apollo days, or that we have right now for the 2010 Winter Olympics up in Vancouver then space may be a whole great place. And if people open up their launching sites like the Kennedy Space Center and people get to experience that amazing sensation of seeing a human launch into space, maybe that could change some views. And people just actually have to go see a launch of a manned spacecraft, especially a space shuttle, a few left, 
to get that same feeling like I felt when I saw uh, STS-130 go up. I had that feeling of national pride and saying, wow, the United States did that. Yeah, well, gang, there's only four left, so if you want to go over and see them, now's the time. Please. How about right. some additional comments uh, from uh, Sawyer from some of your other experiences that were uh, Kennedy uh, Space Center related? And uh, I was fortunate enough to get down there uh, on the evening of the first launch attempt, and we got to have dinner with you and your family. And we had some other surprises there, too. Why don't you tell us about that? All right. Well, while we were down there, uh, there were a bunch of uh, space parties going on there. Uh, there was one from Space Flight Now. There was one of all the space tweeps, which we were at. And uh, also over on the other side of the table was the family of uh, Terry Virts, who was the pilot of STS-130. And uh, everyone encouraged me to go over there. And I was like, yeah, maybe. I don't want to disturb them. So thank you very much, Mark, for getting the courage to go with me. And the two of us went up to the family and, you know, said I were, you know the whole space tweet thing and about space and the family was so nice because all of a sudden they called over the mother of Terry Verts who uh, I believe her name's Evelyn and she was an amazing lady and I mean they gave me so many things they gave me a crew picture they gave me a pin she took right off of her own shirt she gave me a sticker uh, and the most really amazing thing that she did was is that on their wrist they had specially made wristbands for STS-130 it says on STS-130 pilot Terry Verts they took that right off their wrists and were like you don't have to do you have another one they're like keep it so they were just really amazing people yeah that's top notch class because uh, the first couple folks that I talked to they were actually on their way out the door because they had to get down south and then get back up to the cave for uh, you know, for their viewing spot that they had that NASA had set for them, and I talked to one of the other people, and it was one of uh, one of Terry's cousins, and uh, she said, "Well, his mother's right here. Just a second. and she took off and and <laughs> and talked to his mother, and next thing you know, you're surrounded. So I backed off because I knew that I I saw photos being taken, and uh, oh, it was exciting. It was amazing. Which, by the way, my mom took a lot of photos, and they're on Facebook. So if anybody that's friended me on Facebook, you'll, you should be able to see them. I'll, I'll have to check that out, Sawyer. Uh, Gina, you also had some Traveler's Tales to share, too, don't you? Yeah, I spent last Sunday, uh, Sunday the 7th Super Bowl Sunday, at the Space Center in Houston, which was great because it was deserted, probably due to the Super Bowl. And I spent about eight and a half hours there, and I, I did everything the Visitor Center had to offer including going over to Historic Mission Control, which was, which was uh, amazing. And, and they bring you in the visitor's gallery. You don't get into the trench. But um, there was a few things that I found disappointing at the Space Center. I, I watched the movie about the space station, which was clearly old, outdated, and they hadn't even acknowledged the end of the shuttle program. I, I mean, I understand these things. You know, you, you're not just going to pull the film and edit it out, you know, and edit and make changes. But I went to what they call the blast-off theater where you stand in this room and there's three large screens and they show you up close a shuttle launching, which is great. And, you know, the sound, the acoustics they have in there, they're really trying to throw some, you know, sound vibration at you. And 
when the main engines start up, you know, they get the vapor effect and that, you know, rolls over you. And then you watch that that presentation and forth into theater where you are briefed um, by what's happening in space currently. And I was there the night or the day after the first launch attempt of STS-130. So the gentleman doing the briefing um, started to brief us on STS-130's launch for the the attempt for the next day. And he went through that and so forth and um, also talked about the Constellation program being on hold. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean canceled? No, no, no. He meant on hold. And I couldn't quite tell if he was just trying to simplify it for the audience or if he really was misinformed or they just weren't believing it themselves yet and that's what they were trying to express. It was a little bit disappointing. froze to death that day, actually, because part of the tour is an outdoor tram ride. But, I mean, you know, I had a good time, of course. I spent about an hour sitting at the shuttle simulator, the landing simulator, with no one around, and finally landed the damn thing, so after a while. Not easy to do, but the highlight of visiting Johnson Space Center from the visitor center is you get on the tram ride, and it's going to take you to three places. It'll take you to historic mission control. It will take you to uh, what they call the rocket, uh, well, it's the rocket garden at Kennedy, it's uh, the rock, Rocket Park, um, where you can get much closer to a Saturn V, although the building's not as impressive as Kennedy Space Center, Saturn V Center. Um, the rocket is not suspended from the ceiling. It's closer to the ground, so you can get up close and personal with it. And um, they bring you over to the astronaut mock-up training facility, so you kind of walk along this catwalk and you look down and you can see every module of the space station is lying there on the floor. The astronauts can go in and understand, you know, how much space around them they will have or, you know, just how many cubic feet of space they have to perform the tasks. And they can train and, you know, figure out what items in locker A and in this module and so forth. That's about 90 minutes. And... Um, that's probably the thing uh, that's probably the highlight of, of being at the entire space center I mean they have some pretty good exhibits and so forth but um, if you're a real junkie that's what you want to see cool I'll have to go ahead and check it out and let you guys know and with that I believe we are just about done here so first off let me say a big thank you to all of our listeners here because as of now we are now at a huge number of listeners record number compared to what we would have ever thought we had thank you very much everybody out there for listening and of course i have to thank everybody that joined me tonight thank you very much gene mcculka oh anytime sawyer this has been fun this is always great thank you gina hurlihy hey no problem sawyer it was great to hear about your trip glad you enjoyed listening to my rambling and mark ratterman thank you for joining us as well you're very welcome, Sawyer. And uh, same here. It's good to hear about it, even though I was there for parts of it. And uh, just a plug for your uh, your video blog that you did. Uh, you might want to mention that because I saw just a portion of it and looked good. Oh Thank yeah, you. Sawyer, that was amazing. I, I, you, you did a really good job with that. Seriously, you got to plug that, man. Seriously. Thanks. By the way, it's not done. Just so you know, the video blog right now. I've encountered a major technical issue. Uh, with the provider whose name I will not mention for their horrendous 
technical support and assistance. But uh, if you read my tweets, you'll probably figure out who it was. But due to that program, unfortunately, I've been on pause. I've got tons of tape still uh, from the rest of my trip that I need to upload and edit. But until then, you can check out my past video blogs for my trip at my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash thenasaman1, and I will put that link in the information to this show. Sorry if I was a little tired, because I literally landed about three and a half hours ago, or got home three and a half hours ago from Florida. But regardless, from New Jersey here, or for wherever you are, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 